Wasn't that a great song to launch a series? Any series. Jesus be the center. Jesus be the center of my life. Jesus be the center of our church. Good things happen when Jesus is the center. I have spent most of the last 48 hours with our teenagers. Woohoo! They're like, woohoo! We're so tired! Woohoo! It was fantastic, wasn't it? It was so good. And what we did is we got away for a little mini retreat. Friday night, Saturday, up until late last night, we were down at Gospel Hill Camp. And what we try to do in our retreats is we, we try our best to have Jesus be the center of everything. Not just the times where we gather to sing and to open our Bibles together, but in everything. When we play our games, we want Him to be the center of that. When we, when we do our meals, we want Him to be the center of that. We want, we want to try to have God be the, the first thing that we're thinking about in the day and the last thing we're thinking about at night. And when you do that, great things can happen. This year's theme was Area 5-1. And the verse that we used as our theme verse was this one. It's out of Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. We used an alien motif to illustrate this. And we, we do this comparison just as Area 51 is this place that's thought to be where the heavens and the earth collide. We said, you know, if you start doing this, Ephesians 5.1, some pretty cool things are going to start to happen there. Pretty cool things are going to start to happen. When you pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And you start to try to live this out as best you can with the Holy Spirit helping you out. You try to live this out. And that, that vision, that hope, is not just for our teenagers. That vision, that hope, is for all of us. I hope to, to, to read and put this in print and talk about this as much as we can until we all get this. This is our vision for our church right here. These are the, this is the, a picture of what we see could happen if we start to do that. As we increasingly live lives worthy of the name God gave us. And what is the name God gave us? Emmanuel Covenant, which means... God with us. If, as we increasingly live life worthy of a name like that, we envision a church family through whom the gospel is proclaimed and hope is restored and lost are welcome home and believers are challenged and resources are well stewarded and strangers become friends and relationships are reconciled and those in need find support and ugly church politics find no foothold and singles aren't alone and families are strengthened and young people are trained in the way they should go and our neighbors are blessed and skeptics are astounded, and God is glorified. Amen. When we give that invitation, experience God with us, that's what we're inviting people into. We're inviting them into that. And our world needs more of that, doesn't it? We all know people whose lives are not turning out the way they dreamed they would. And that's the truth for all of us, right? some extent or another. We all know people whose lives are not turning out the way they dreamed they would. And, and those folks are asking, if they're coming here, they're asking, is this a safe place for me? Is it safe? Am I welcome here? If my marriage is a mess, if I'm lonely, if I'm up to my eyeballs in debt, if my kids are out of control, if I am addicted to alcohol or pornography, am I welcome here? Is this a safe place to put my life back together? Is this a community where, where I'm going to receive some encouragement and some support? Or am I just going to get judgment and condemnation, which I already feel? 
wouldn't it be tragic if someone who was trying to put their life back together came here and they felt, this is not a place I can do that. And we also know people. We know people with questions and doubts. We know people who are asking, is God for real? You really believe that? We know people who are saying, okay, the Bible, you hold that in a different authority than any other book. Why? And they have these questions. And, and if they have the questions and they're walking through these doors, they're not the ones who are looking for a fight. They probably sincerely want answers. And they might be thinking, is this a safe place for me? Am I welcome here? Can I ask my questions and receive more than just a superficial response? Will my searching be met with real interest or merely tolerance? They might be wondering, is this a safe place to explore the reality of God and the reliability of Scripture? And wouldn't it be tragic? Wouldn't it be tragic if someone had real questions, came among us and thought, it's not a safe place to ask these questions. I'm just going to be met with judgment, superficiality, or whatever. Now, most of our guests, most of the people that visit us, they've got a church background, and most of the people that visit us, they come with a pre-existing reverence for the Word of God. They hold the Bible in high regard. And if they're visiting us and they don't know us, they might be wondering, is it a safe place for me? Is this a place where I am welcome? Can I raise theological questions here? Are there parts of the Bible that are just off limits here for dialogue or debate? They might be wondering, is this a safe place to explore the most dangerous book that's ever been written? And wouldn't it be tragic if our church was a place we couldn't talk about controversial scriptures? Wouldn't that be tragic? Well, today we're launching a brand new series called Identity and Desire. And in preparation from this series, I had the privilege of sitting down with a number of folks who have a same-sex orientation. And each of them, each person was in a unique place. Every person's an individual, and, and, and each person had a different place on their faith journey that they were at. But all of the people I talked to with the same-sex orientation said that most churches don't feel safe. And they don't feel welcoming. And wouldn't it be tragic if people with the same-sex orientation who are looking to gather with followers of Jesus and worship the living God and experience community and learn and grow, wouldn't it be tragic if they felt it wasn't safe to try to do that here? For the last nine months or so, I've been on a journey. I've been trying my best to listen and learn. And what I've been discovering along the way is that very few people are trying to listen and trying to learn on, on issues, a lot of issues, but specifically with issues associated with same-sex orientation. There's a whole lot of opinionating. There's an abundance of othering. There's a whole lot of casting stones, but very few people are trying to listen and learn. The dominant metaphor that people are using, it's war. That is the dominant metaphor that people are using. Um, I get a lot of stuff across my desk. And this fall, when there were some hot elections going on, um, I received a packet of information from a coalition of churches. And war was their dominant metaphor. Uh, they, they used the words battle. In fact, direct quote, um, we didn't ask for this battle, but we believe bold, Christ-like leadership is urgently needed. 
for the sake of the gospel, for the glory of Lord Jesus, and for the good of our state. And ironically, these people were talking about battle and war. It was signed from churches that have names like Grace and Hope. You know, and, and certainly it goes both ways. I see a whole lot of stuff on the other side. This is an article from Rolling Stone, and they're using the same language that everyone's using out there. War, battle. We've got to fight those religious extremists. The dominant metaphor that's out there is one of war. It's one of battle. Here's how one author summarized it. He said, as people pick sides, each camp has an unflattering image of the other to promote. Christians are portrayed as ignorant, homophobic bigots trying to force their outdated religious views down everyone's throats. Gays and those who support gay marriage are portrayed as homosexual activists seeking to undermine the family and the moral fabric of our society. He continues on. And, the ba- and with the battle lines drawn, the fight is on. Political groups on each side frantically raise funds to battle over issues like same-sex marriage and hate crimes legislation, each using scare tactics to warn their supporters that if they don't raise enough money and the other side wins, their rights will be taken away and the country will go down in flames. They battle over court decisions and media messages and school curricula. They agonize over each shift in public opinion. According to both sides, this is life or death. The outcome of these battles will determine the safety of our youth and the future of our country. Is that, I mean, doesn't that summarize what most of us are experiencing? And is this a case with any war, there's a lot of collateral damage. And that's what's been so hard to see. Someone handed me a, a DVD, and in the DVD there was a testimonial from a woman. And she was a professing Christian woman, and, and her daughter came out. Her adult daughter came out, and, and mom met that with rejection. Met it with rejection, and that was the last conversation they had before her daughter committed suicide. And I've spoken with Christians. I've spoken with Christians who no longer feel, if they hold more of a traditional understanding of marriage, that they feel like they can't express their opinions anymore. That they can't express their opinions without being labeled as haters or homophobes or as people who oppose freedom or oppose tolerance or oppose civil rights. I had the privilege of sitting down with a a lesbian couple and, and they talked about how when they go into certain bars in outstate Minnesota, they're scared because they know they could be threatened and they have been threatened. Violence, rape. I've read a whole lot of articles, I'm sure you've seen them too, featuring Christian business owners who become the subject of boycotts simply because of their beliefs, whether or not they're infusing them into their workplace. Some who have a same-sex orientation and a faith in God, they feel torn between two worlds. They feel ostracized by Christians who use the word choice to describe an orientation that they didn't choose and by members of the LGBT community who tell them, how can you embrace Christianity when Christianity doesn't embrace you? And they feel torn. It is a war and it is ugly. Ugly. That DVD that I referenced earlier, they had a clip in there, a clip of a, of a pastor And this pastor is up in front of his huge congregation. And he had a TV ministry. And this pastor's up there, and he says this. He says, if a man ever looked at me like that, I'd kill him. And I'd tell God that I did it. And the congregation laughs and applauds. And the ugliness is just as ugly on both sides. There's a pastor. His name is Rick Warren. He's an evangelical pastor in a large church. 
And he had an adult son named Matthew, who after a long battle with depression, committed suicide. And I was looking that up. I was looking up the articles surrounding that. And I'm not even going to read this, but here's a comment after one of the articles. We take that down. How, how can we? How can you possibly have a web web page and not not take that comment off? Unless you're in a war and you want to demonize the other side. People have asked me along the way. They said, "Why are you bringing this up? Why are you going here? Why, why, why are you why are you even trying to broach this topic in church?" It's like asking a lifeguard to see someone drowning. And to say, just sit there. There are professing Christians who are misrepresenting Christ. There are people who are quoting the Bible and they're taking passages way out of context. There are people facing questions they're not equipped to answer. There are people who are being called upon to make decisions they aren't equipped to make. And there's people who are suffering from this collateral damage. And here's the thing that I just find amazing. I, I've been talking to a lot of folks. And as I've been talking to people, dozens of people over the last nine months, none of them, not one, has ever studied this. Their opinions may be based on, a, on a, a, a little bit of scripture reading, maybe an article or two, but none of them, not one, have studied this. And truth be told, I hadn't either. Like almost everyone else, any opinions that I was forming came without Deep, biblical, spirit-led reflection. Can we do that together? We're about six years old as a church. That's about 300 sermons. But this is the first series where we've tried to at least step into the conversation. And I believe we can go there and we can maintain unity in Christ. I believe we can because we just did it with our teenagers. Not with this topic. But we, we, did we press into some hard stuff? Yeah! We pressed into some hard stuff. They can do it. Can we do it? We can do it. So let's begin here. If you have your Bibles, let's open up together. And there's something so good about this, isn't it? Let's open in our Bibles together. If you've been around here for a while, this series is going to feel like other series. We're no strangers to controversy. And what we do is we try our best to open up our Bibles together Say, God, speak to us. And that's what we're going to do. We're not changing course now. This is out of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting with verse 17. I also want to let you know, too, you may not have a Bible at home. And if you don't, we would love to give you one as a gift today. We always keep a stack of them there at the tables every week, every series. And we'd encourage you to take one as a gift. So here we go. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting with verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. And all this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And he gave us the ministry of what? Reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us, gulp, the message of what? Oh, man. 
We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, we have a creator. I've tried to express this in the weeks leading up here. We have a creator who has a love and a concern for his creation that I am not able to fully understand, let alone articulate. He wants his kids to come home. He wants his kids to love one another. He wants us to walk in grace and truth. He wants us to maintain unity, but unity in Christ. He wants us to be able to abide by his life, giving commands. And he wants us to experience eternity together. And to make that possible, he did this. There's a place to write this in your notes. Um, We have these little green note pages. And I encourage you to, to take a moment, write this down. And this isn't my rewording. This is what the scripture just says. God reconciles people to himself through Christ. Now, if you're not familiar with Christianity, but you've heard the phrase, good news, this is it. Right? This is it. This is the good news, that God still does this. He reconciles people to himself through Christ. God made a way for sinful humanity, and that's all of us. That is all of us. People like you and me to be united to a holy God. Jesus of Nazareth is the key to unlocking all this. And we're going to press into that more as the series goes on, more precisely what that means. That is what God does. And here's what God asks us to do. Please write this down too, my big gulp. God asks us to do this. Christians are expected to bring the message of reconciliation to the world. Of course he is expecting us to do this. Christians are are expected to bring the message of reconciliation, reconciliation to the world. Is that easy? No. No. It's not. If Fred Phelps and Rosie O'Donnell, listen to my podcast. They are not going to become BFFs. There are some people, they, they, will not, they will not go here. They will not go to reconciliation. There are some folks, there are some conversations. Unfortunately, you won't be able to have because people don't want to converse. They want war. And part of the challenge in, in this or anything is learning, well, do we enter a discussion or are there these people we just don't talk with because they don't want to talk? Reconciliation is not easy. Here's some of the reasons why it's not easy. It is hard work. The first one is this. It is costly. Reconciliation is costly. It is a lot easier to say nothing or to pick a side, isn't it? It is a lot easier to say nothing or to pick a side. And there's a temptation to do that either as an individual or as a church to do one or the other. There's a temptation to say nothing, to fly under the radar. There's a temptation for churches. Hey, stick with the topics that are just about having a nice suburban life and how God can bless that. There's there's a temptation to do that. Let's just avoid anything that's going to fracture folks. That's one temptation. Then there's another temptation. The other temptation is to pick a side, to mark it to one of the margins. Do that long enough, and everyone who disagrees with you is going to leave. And you'll start thinking, no one disagrees with me except those evil people out there. Those are the choices most people make because reconciliation is hard. Reconciliation, it's costly. Here's some of the reasons it's costly. Look at this. The message of reconciliation will only put you at odds with these groups, with religious people, secular people, demonic forces, and internal desires. So you'll only be at odds with religious people, secular people, demonic forces, or yourself. 
if you choose the route of reconciliation. You're going to be at odds with religious people. And I specifically say religious and not a relationship with God. Because religious people, it's here's my rules, my rituals. Are you for me or against me? And if you try to do reconciliation, you're at odds with them. Because they don't want reconciliation. They want everyone to see everything exactly the way they see it. Secular people, same thing. You'd be at odds with those who want to know, are you for us or against us? I believe there's demonic forces at work. We've studied that together before as a church. And they love to see us at war with one another. They love that. And then the internal desires, internal desires. All of us have this thing in us when we come up against conflict, it's either fight or flight, right? Fight or flight, that's what, what comes up. That's our desire. There's conflict, either I want to fight the conflict or... I want to flee from the conflict. And so if you come into a thing where there's reconciliation, there's going to be conflict. So you're, you're, you're going to feel this fight or flight internally. You'll feel it against the people that are coming against you or the people you're trying to bring together. Oh, I've given up or I'm, I, I'm, I'm going to fight this. And even with God, it's the same thing. As you press into the discomfort, you're going to want to fight or flight. So... To do the work of reconciliation, it's going to put you at odds with all that. It's costly. It was costly for Jesus. What did it cost him? His life. And what did he say to his disciples on the eve of his betrayal? Jesus said, hey, I had my haters. Follow me. You're going to have haters too. He told them straight up. Jesus was not naive. Jesus knew his message of reconciliation would not result in, oh, we're just supposed to get along? Okay. I'll sing kumbaya around the campfire. Oh, okay, Jesus, you know. And he was Jesus. It cost him his life. It got him killed. But he also knew this. He wasn't naive. He knew that his death would bring about a resurrection. And he knows that our death, if we're willing to die to self, if we're willing to say, okay, God, here I am. Teach me what this message of reconciliation is. Help me bring it to the world. As we die to ourselves in that way, he knows what can happen in our resurrection as we become new creations in Christ. Reconciliation, it's costly. It's going to require you to die to yourself, to pick up a cross. And it's not just costly, it is confusing. I got the alliteration thing going, don't I? C-O-C-O. It is confusing. The message of reconciliation would be a whole lot easier and a whole lot less awkward and a whole lot less confusing if reconciliation was either grace or truth, law or gospel, accepting Jesus as Savior or as Lord. If it was either or, it'd be a lot easier and an easier message. But it's not either or. Reconciliation, as we're going to explore in the weeks ahead, it's grace and truth. It's law and gospel. It's about a Savior and Lord. How do you do that? That brings us to number three on the things that make the world reconciliation or things that make reconciliation really hard countdown. Here's number three. Reconciliation is messy. And as I was trying to think of a word that started with a C-O <laughs> that said messy, the irony just hit me. It's messy. You can't just do a little alliteration and say, get it, got it good, right? It's messy. 
It is absolutely messy. Christianity is messy, especially when it comes to reconciliation. Just look at the group. You don't believe me? Look at the group that Jesus tried to bring together. We have, an, we have an opportunity through the scriptures to listen in on their conversations as they're trying to work all this out. Oh, it was messy. Read the book of Acts. We often quote that great passage about when things were so good. They're in Acts chapter 2, and they're all getting along, and the Spirit's there with them. <laughs> chapter 3, 4, 5. Now what do we do? Wait a minute. Paradigm buster here. It's messy. We are constantly trying to figure things out. It is hard to reconcile. Hear this. It is hard to reconcile checkbooks. It is hard to reconcile cash drawers. It is hard to reconcile budgets. It is hard to reconcile balance sheets. And that's math. Right? In math, 2 plus 2 always equals 4. In my relationships, 2 plus 2 never equals 4. Even with the people who like me to begin with, it never equals four. Never. It's going to be hard. It's going to be costly. It's going to be confusing. It's going to be messy. And it's my job sometimes to say, we need to talk about this. Whether it's this or any other topic, there's sometimes that's my job to just say, we got to have a conversation. You know, people have been saying, okay, what are you going to say? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. You know, what's the goal of the series? To have the series. You know, I, you know it's one of those words. It's the whole lifeguard thing. It's like, we got to do something. So we'll put it on the calendar. And by God's grace, we'll have something to say then. The title of the series has changed. The topics, hasn't it? The, t- the subtopics have changed. This last week, it changed again. You know, it, it, we're going to do the best we can. God's truth doesn't change. But how we approach it and how we deliver it as best we can in a God-honoring way, that's where it gets messy. And sometimes it's my job to say, no, we're not going to talk about that now because we need to talk about this. But there's other times we're just like, okay, everybody, let's start a conversation. That's my job. And what our job is, all of us, is to engage in the ministry of what? And bring a message of reconciliation. That's all of our job. That's my job. It's your job. It's not my job to reconcile. This is one-way conversation. All I can do is start some thinking and some conversations and some, hopefully, to, to get people searching the scriptures and seeking the spirit of God and getting into conversations where they're listening and learning. I can do that, but we all have to do the hard part, the messy part of reconciliation. Can I count any of you in? Yeah, I know I can. So let's do this. As, as we, 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 before we come to the Lord's table together, I want to show you one more passage of Scripture. And I normally don't read out of the message. I love the message, but it's primarily we mostly study and teach here. And this is really good for devotional reading. It's more of a paraphrase than it is a direct translation. But boy, the way he words this, this is really good. This is out of 1 Peter chapter 2, starting with verse 9. You're the, chosen, you're, you're the ones chosen by God. You're chosen for the high calling of priestly work. You're chosen to be a holy people, God's instruments to do his work and speak out for him, to tell others of the night and day difference he made for you from nothing to something, from rejected to accepted. Friends, this world isn't your home. So don't make yourselves too cozy in it. This next part is golden. <laughs> 
Don't indulge your ego at the expense of your soul. Live an exemplary life among the natives so that your actions will refute their prejudices. Then they'll be won over to God's side instead of expecting God to come on theirs and be there to join in the celebration when he arrives. Isn't that good? That is good. And we need to go there. We need to go there because we're taking a huge risk in a series like this. Most people aren't listening. Most people aren't listening. And so what will happen? I can picture this. This is a very real scenario that could happen. There could be someone that walks by. They come here for a workout. And they hear, oh, they're talking about that topic. And they call the community center. And they call the community center and they said, how can you rent to those haters? And you know what I think is going to happen if the Shoreview Community Center gets a call like that? They're going to say, what haters? Because I know so many of you are trying to live this out. And this is what the community center staff sees when they interact with us. And, and, and because we're trying to submit ourselves to God's good ways, I think the Shoreview Community Center staff is going to say, I, okay, that's not who we know. And there's a chance in a series like this that, that someone will come in and, and they're not listening to what we're actually saying, but they're assuming what we're saying. And they're looking for code language. I'm not using code language, by the way. If you think I'm using code, I'm not using code. And I could picture someone coming in and, and going off and calling our, our superintendent of our Northwest Conference, right? Mark, do you know ECC is watering down the scriptures? And I could just picture Mark because Mark would say this. It's like, what? ECC, watering down the scriptures. ECC who boldly goes where the scripture says to go. Okay, click, you know. Why will he do that? Because we're trying our best to live this out and to be faithful to the word of God. Now closer to home, if your son or daughter comes out, if your gay or lesbian friend or coworker visits, don't you hope they're going to experience this from the people they encounter? People, if they, if they came in with prejudices, if they came in thinking, oh, this is how those church people are, what if they came in and encountered 300 people who aren't like that? What if they encountered 300 people who listen, who love? 300 people who are serious about looking at the scriptures, saying, what does it say to all of us? Where does God put boundaries in place? Where doesn't he? Let's explore that. Let's do our best to live in grace and truth. What if? That's what they experience, us trying to do this as best we can in the power of the Holy Spirit. I hope, I hope, I hope, I pray that's what people experience not just on this, but on any topic that the Bible teaches us on. I hope they'll experience God with us. And that won't be possible. That won't be possible unless we continually invite the Spirit of Christ, renew our hearts, renew our minds. If we don't continually pause to confess our sins, realign our lives with His life-giving Word, to which right away some people might go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You started this whole thing with a passage about Christ. And Jesus Never stepped into this conversation. Why are we? 
Now, as someone who also possesses the spiritual gift of cynicism and skepticism, I have both those gifts. <laughs> that thought crossed my mind, too. And as my mind went there, wait a minute, do I, am I messing up week one? I'm sure I am, but am I messing up week one in this way? I was quickly reminded, what was the example that Jesus set? The example Jesus set, he went into the controversial issues of his day. He went into all of them. All of the controversial issues that we know of, that Jesus was invited into, he went there. Sexual orientation was not a hot topic among first century Jews. Divorce was. And Jesus admonished those who were listening to reconcile their opinions with God's intent for marriage. Taxes. Taxes was a hot topic. And Jesus admonished those who were listening to reconcile their opinions with God's will. Give to Caesar what's Caesar. Give to God what's God's. And when Jesus was asked a very controversial question about marriage in the afterlife... He once again steered conversation away from opinionation and he directed it towards reconciliation with the scriptures and the power of God. Nobody does reconciliation like Jesus. And isn't that why we gather around the Lord's table regularly here as a church? This morning, you're invited to join us at the Lord's table, not as a religious ritual, but as a reconciliation thing. To say, God, where have I drifted? Christ, where am I not living as you lived? And we come to him once again asking for his wisdom and his forgiveness and his direction and his strength and his guidance. And so the way we do it at our church is uh, in a few minutes I'll invite, we'll, we'll say some prayers together. I think that's so important. Instead of trying to divide over over who's doing what and who's not doing what, to, to be able to say, we're all sinners here. And to be able to hear other people around you confessing that, but not just stopping there, inviting the Spirit of God to come in and cleanse us and guide us and lead us. So we'll pray together, and then I'll invite the servers forward, communion service, and one team will go off to that side, and one team will go off to this side. And then rather than ushers saying, now you go, now you go, now you go, we have it be a deliberate choice on your part. If you would like to come forward to the Lord's table, the only person that's going to prevent you is you. If you can sincerely pray these prayers we're praying, if you can come forward with integrity in that way, we would love for you to come forward. Walk down that center aisle. There's a little mini altar call. And come to Christ, saying, Here I am, all of me. What you say, I'll do. Where you lead, I'll follow. We'll have songs during that time. We'll also have people praying for you on both sides. If you would like, you can go and receive prayer. So at this time, let's have the worship band come up and let's pray together uh, these prayers. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, to whom all hearts and minds are open and all desires are known, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that we may more perfectly love you and more worthily magnify your holy name. We confess that we are sinners and cannot save ourselves. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. 
For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. We are not worthy for these gifts which we are about to receive, but say the word and we will be made clean. Let me pray over you. Father, we pray now that your spirit will continue to descend upon us. And now, Lord, rather than than this one-way conversation, start those two-way conversations between you and, and us. Speak to us, Holy Spirit. Reveal to us who you are and how profound this invitation is right now before us. Thank you, God, that you went first. Thank you that you were the reconciler, the great reconciler. And we pray now, Lord, that we could come and reconcile our full selves to you, our minds, our hearts, our bodies. May we offer all of it as a pleasing sacrifice to you. Thank you for your grace that calls us forward. Thank you for your law which steers our path. We want to receive it all, Father every good thing you have for us. So help us leave the bad things behind. Bring to our attention what they are. Help us to be inspired by what's ahead for all those who put their full trust in you. And may all that intersect right now. And Father, as one last act of solidarity, expressing our unity in you, we pray a prayer that you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. 